0: Welcome to the Indian Silicon Valley podcast. I'm your host Jivraj and on this podcast I speak with founders, investors and domain experts from the Indian Valley trying to understand the art of building a legendary company. In this episode I speak with Amit Kumar Agarwal, co-founder and CEO of NoBroker. NoBroker is India's leading real estate tech startup disrupting the way millions of Indians discover residential properties and interact with them for multiple types of transactions in a tech-led environment, as opposed to dealing with brokers or other middlemen who would earlier consume a considerable portion of each transaction. What started as a disruptive solution in 2014 to a deep knitted problem in the real estate market is today worth more than a billion dollars after years of strong fundamentals and compounded growth. No Broker is just getting started and I chat with Amit, its CEO, to understand the journey that got them here. In an eventful 45 minutes, we discuss a variety of things primarily focused around what it means to disrupt a category with an original solution, especially in a conventional market. Through the conversation, we decode Amit's journey of hailing from a consulting background and becoming a founder to building a successful organization with thousands of employees. We grasp the values that have made no broker successful, the struggles encountered along the way, and the tenets that fundamentally lead to the disruption of the market. This episode lays down phenomenally well the thought process and direction that leads to building a differentiated long term company. I'm sure you will take back multiple company building lessons, but before we get there, here is a quick word about our sponsor. This episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast is presented by Stride Ventures, which is one of India's leading venture debt funds becoming synonymous with innovative startup financing in India. Stride Ventures provides comprehensive solutions going beyond venture debt to cater to distinctive challenges faced by high growth and inherently strong businesses backed by leading institutions. The fund has a portfolio of over 60 plus diversified companies having deployed more than 1,500 crore rupees to date. In just over two years, Stride Ventures has emerged as the preferred venture debt lender in the Indian ecosystem to know more about this phenomenal fund, visit strideventures.in that is spelled as S-T-R-I-D-E-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot I-N. And with that, let's dive in to the 95th episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast with Amit Kumar Agarwal of No Broker. Thank you so much, Amit, for joining me. Incredibly delighted to be hosting you today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Amit. Uh, And I think I'm very excited to hear from you, especially because real estate is not one of those most, you know, very celebrated, sexy fields, yet, uh, given your background and the way you started and established no broker is one of a kind. So I want to start on an abstract note, wherein I want to understand, you know, considering that no broker is a very original solution, something that has not been replicated in other similar geographies, Uh, what do you think about coming up with category creating solutions, right? When you were in the process of developing and thinking about no broker, what was the thought process like? What were the apprehensions like? And how did you establish it? If you can take us through your mindset then with the context that it is difficult to establish original solutions to real-life problems, I think that would be wonderful to start off.
1: You're right. So, so many a times, I would say that almost every time a startup, whenever they are trying to do something, either it is completely new or it is a variation of what is being done for the betterment. The no broker concept and for for your for the audience and viewers who do not know about no broker, it's basically a platform which connects property owners and tenants, buyers and sellers directly with each other without any broker in between. And so when basically me, Akhil and Sora, when we started no broker, our thought was, was based on our own experiences. Our, our own experiences were that brokers basically charge too much money and uh, add very little value. And why can't technology basically just remove them? But the problem with the original uh, sort of idea is that it is not easy to get it funded. Uh, customers do love it if the value proportion is strong and it was strong, it is strong. But in terms of the investors, we faced problem because The going hypothesis is that if it is big in US and China, it might become big in India. But if it is not big anywhere else, then it is perhaps very difficult. So I think that was the initial challenge that we faced. Uh, Apart from that, the other challenge which people told us was that uh, would customers be paying in advance for real estate, which they have never paid anywhere else in the world.
0: Got it. No, I think uh, those are interesting challenges that you began with. And, you know, history has it that companies like Airbnb did not get, you know, the kind of funding. And similarly, you know, I'm guessing you had your challenges. But uh, your journey also is very interesting, right, Amit? I'm guessing that, you know, you come from a consultant background and everybody talks about this conjecture that, you know, young founders or, you know, consultants don't make for the best founders and all of those stereotypes that you break. Uh, in practicality, so maybe if you can take us through what was the unlearning process for you, uh, who came from you know the IIT and the IEM background and then the consultant background, that would be super interesting. So
1: I would say consulting background helped me hugely, uh, more so because my consulting background is not like those consultants who basically make a give recommendations and then move to the next client. My assignments involved both the things. One was strategy consulting, another was executing it and realizing the benefits for the client and then revenue sharing from that. So that basically, so for example, you might give a recommendation that a bank's 200 bank branches should or 2000 bank branches should should scan it and scan the credit file and send it to the credit uh, regional center uh, for processing of credit and you don't need to have a credit manager at every branch. So that's a good suggestion, but when you actually go to the branches and when you figure out that there is a unheard branch in a very small town near Bangladesh border and the electricity is is basically fluctuating, then how do you scan? So you get to basically see extremely practical operational challenges. So I think consulting has been a very, very plus to me uh, in terms of execution, in terms of building, whatever learnings I had from my consulting career, I think, most of them have fit beautifully. So to a very large extent, whatever I have been able to do with my teams, I would give the credit to my consulting background.
0: Got it, got it. No, that's that's a very fresh perspective and very interesting. Uh, But moving further, right, I mean, understanding more about the model in and of itself, because at the time when no broker came, I'm guessing there were similar competitors with a different model altogether. And it was a crowded space, right? So if you can talk to us about the initial journey of how the initial response of the market was, initial response of the customer was, and also the stakeholder that was being removed from the value chain, the broker itself, right? What was their response to the idea and how did you go about establishing it? The zero to one, perhaps, I think that would be nice. So the 0 to 1, of
1: course, basically had multiple challenges and you have referred to three or four of them. In terms of the customers, I think customers always loved us, thankfully. And uh, Indian ecosystem fortunately provides a lot of initial adopters. So, So C2C network is very, very difficult to build because you need customer on both the sides. And so it is not a mobile, right, that you can in B2C where you can manufacture or you can get hold of it and you can supply. You need to do a matchmaking. So it's a micro locality matchmaking business that we are in. Uh, But still a lot of customers had huge amount of patience because they genuinely wanted to eliminate brokerage and save money. So Indian consumers, I would say, have always been very supportive and continue. Of course, in terms of the, our objective is always to reduce the cost of transactions. So we are not against brokers. We are against high amount of brokerage. But uh, of course, uh, so brokers did not like us much and uh, we... (laughs) We did not have good experiences with brokers. We used to get a lot of threatening calls and then also an attack on the office happened. So the broker was difficult. And in terms of employees and stakeholders, I think everybody, most of the people took pride in what we are doing, because what we were doing was uh, very, very earth shattering. And then over the years, seeing the network grow, seeing the company grow, I think have filled a lot of our team members with huge amount of pride.
0: Absolutely. I think that's very heartening to hear. Any thoughts around the competitive landscape at the time? Because I'm guessing that other similar models which are heavily funded as opposed to a new one must have been daunting to begin with. But how did you look at competition at the time and what is the strategy around it?
1: So if you look at competition, it can be broken into two portions. One is direct competition and another is potential competition or indirect competition. So when we started, most of the players were basically focusing on brokers. Most what most almost everybody was focusing on brokers. And they were very, very well-funded players run by extremely competent founders. And then a couple of companies who were doing either similar to what we are doing or had a chance that they could come into our area, right? So that was there. So if you look back from the competitive intensity point of view, it was massive. And when I basically think about it, I often wonder that with all the knowledge that I have today, had I been not so ignorant at that point of time, would I really have, me and my co-founders, would we have really ventured into and taken so much of risk? I'm not sure. But I think that bit of ignorance also helped us because despite having very Heavy competition, very well-funded competition, deep pocketed competition. Even we our own world, we basically just said that yes, we have got three million dollars. It felt as if we have got the entire world. We have got three million. We are, we can do anything. And so we just, I think, put our put the blinkers on, put our head down, and we just kept on doing what we are doing, what we were doing. And I remember distinctly, we did not used to see competition websites because we after seeing it once or twice, we felt that, see, anyway, there's nothing that we can do what they are doing. Even if they improve, they change, nothing we can do. We can only focus on our business. So, the best thing is not to basically get uh, deterred or get tempted by what others are doing or get dissuaded by what others are doing. Just keep on doing your own stuff. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: No, that's interesting. I mean, ignorance can sometimes be bliss, as they say, and I think that testifies to it. But it's interesting, you know, uh, another dimension that I'd love to understand from you is the early fundamentals that you had at No Broker that have continued to date. And I'm referring to things like, you know, frugality, a lot of customer centricity. If you can talk about how it's very important to, considering that you had that kind of an experience, was focus on building an organization and having strong fundamentals there from the very start? Or did you, you know, develop that over time? How was that journey of not just building a product or a platform, but also building an organization? I think I'd love to hear that.
1: So I think what basically happened was that at the time when we started in say 2015-14, at that point of time, capital was available, but it was not raining capital at that point of time. And because we are not the 20s, in the age of 20s that we started. So we somehow, we have worked, all of us have worked for 10-15 years in corporate and then started our own company. So I think it was a little innate, little built in us and we all three of us are Agrawals. So it is innate in us that we have to respect money. So it has been seven years. We have raised more than what, 3,500 crores till now, but we have never wasted money. We have never disrespected money. And from the day one, I think we were very, very clear that we have to be as frugal as we can. So I remember, despite having 18 crore in the bank, we did not buy AC for the office because we felt that hey, somewhere in Bangalore is only for two months. Let's we can let's make do. Uh, Whenever we went uh, outside Bangalore to meet investors, all three of us would basically take a large room hotel room or or, or, a a two-bedroom with one extra bed, despite having all this money in the bank. So I think generally the approach was to be frugal and frugal does not mean that we are we are not investing where the roi is good of course we are investing we continue to invest we continue to pay our guys extremely well uh, but frugal basically means that you always look at the roi for any marketing expense for any and not be wasteful so i think that is a culture which we have tried to always build. we never take business class flights and so on and so forth so that is one and second is that in this industry many companies with amazing founders have struggled because they have not looked at getting revenue. And somehow we feel that in a large country like India, it is not very difficult to get a lot of free customers, non-paying customers for any service of yours. You stand on the road and you basically say, I want to lend. <laughs> I think by near the next one hour, you can lend 100 crores. There's no problem in lending, in giving freebies in India. The difficult thing is to le- to make customers pay for it. And our learning has been that it is very difficult to let customer pay 1 rupee. From 0 to 1 is very difficult. I'm saying even even for this podcast that we are doing, we ask customer to pay 1 rupee, it is tough. But if a customer starts paying 1 rupee, then from moving from 1 to 100 is very easy. So, so I think same thing we discovered and we basically felt that we should not wait very long to make money. We might make small money, but we should start so we started company 2015 and unlike many other real estate companies, within a couple of months, we started dipping our feet into revenue. And I think that has that has held us in good stead.
0: Fair enough. No, that's very interesting to hear and goes back to the saying that, you know, early fundamentals really, really matter. And I've heard of those stories, you know, not having ACs, sharing beds and all of the other things. And it's just incredible to see that kind of humility still and those fundamentals. So wonderful to hear that. I think, you know, a related point to what you were mentioning, considering that the no broker model has, you know, a freemium side to it and, you know, subscriptions are where you earn a majority of your revenue from how do you look at uh, objective setting, right? Because there are consumers who are coming on the platform and leveraging the technology and using the service, right? But they're not benefiting the organization directly or moving the needle as such. It is the consumers which are paying that move the needle. So how do you look at the revenue model and how do you look at in turn prioritizing consumers if at all that is a concern? Uh, I think I would love to understand how you figure that out.
1: Sure. So if you just look at other businesses which have disrupted pricing in the past. There's no better example than say Walmart. Uh, And I'm talking about pre online era. And the reason why Walmart was able to, if you read Sam Walton's book, the reason why they were able to disintermediate was because they said we are going to charge less, but we are going to sell much, much more. So we are going to rotate the capital faster. And hence our ROI will be good even when we earn lesser per good per unit. But on our shelves, the things will move faster. I think That's how their economics work. The way in which we thought about economics is that we want to reduce the cost of transaction for our customers. So, for example, just to give an example, if out of 100 customers, I ask 10 customers to pay. And suppose if I ask 90 customers to use a service for free, then the only way this equation works, so I will ask 10 people to pay for value-added services, which is basically relationship manager support, top-notch listing, priority in terms of getting information, etc. Good, basically, premium filters and so on and so forth. So the only way this equation can work is if my cost base is very low. And the only reason how my cost base can be low is if I don't have physical people on the ground. So that has been one of our very core principles that we need to keep our cost very low. So today, thousands of customers are using No Broker for free, but we are also not spending much on them. The variable our variable cost on them is zero. We don't spend anything on them. Our variable, so apart from the marketing cost of acquiring customers, there is nothing. What they provide us, the free customers, is huge amount of traction on the website, huge amount of liquidity, right? The way in which Zerodha and the many brokerage firms they give free equity service, which gives huge amount of traders and huge amount of liquidity. And then those traders work in FNO and provide revenue through FNO. So similarly is our concept that we basically allow huge customers to be free, which give huge amount of traction. And then the selected customers who pay us, our variable cost for them still remains to be low. And overall, the equation works beautifully well. So on a variable cost basis, all our products are profitable. It is only that we keep keep on investing into new cities, new customer acquisition and corporate overheads that uh, we need to move towards profitability.
0: Fair enough. No, that makes complete sense. Uh, But, you know, attuned to that is, let's say, the gradual expansion that you've done on a city by city level. And that has not been as fast. And some might, you know, even debate that you could have been more aggressive in that strategy. And we are in an era where, you know, of course, startups for the right reasons choose growth over profitability at the start. Uh, How have you looked at this debate, right? How have you made certain decisions of maybe going gradual and being steady with your growth, but making it sustainable? How do you look at uh, growth versus uh, profitability? So
1: for us,
0: the the key
1: fulcrum, I would say for any business for expanding cities is that our cost equation should work for a city. So basically, the money that you're spending on customers versus the money that you're earning should basically make sense. Now, what happens in the real estate and especially freemium is that you need to get, get enough number of, of customer base who have heard about no broker. And who like no broker and who experience no broker and are ready to start paying. This takes time. So, and this is great for us, right? This may seem, why is it great for us is because of course, we, we can't take our market overnight. But the advantage is nobody can take the market from us also overnight. So it has taken us seven years to get to 1.6 crore customers. No company can come into India and offer cashbacks and take away these customers overnight. It will still take them three, four, five years and we would have huge time to basically respond to to course correct, etc, etc. So uh, what we have, we would love to basically expand no broker to 50 cities overnight. Because we believe that the problem exists across all cities. The nature dimension of the problem may vary. Some cities may have, may will save more money through residential rental uh, brokerage. Somewhere it will be resale brokerage. Somewhere it will be builder brokerage. Other places might be commercial, PG and so on and so forth. Different depends upon different cities. In some cities, land related brokerage may be higher. But the thing is that if I today, if I tell you, Great things about no broker in this podcast. Will you change your home tomorrow? You will not. You might remember us that if you have to change your home, you might use no broker. But because your purchase frequency is say one year, once in a year, once in two years, once in five years. So we need to, so there is a time period which basically is involved. What we did, I would say rather successfully is not fall into any vanity metric. So, it is very, very glamorous to basically add cities, right? Because 10 of your friends will call. So, it's, and I'm telling you as a, as a founder that it's very exciting. So, I still remember people calling and saying their word about us. But are you getting enough customers? Are those customers getting houses? Are we making money in that city? That doesn't happen in real estate that fast. And we are happy about it. (laughs) Uh, So that is the reason that we have been careful. The thing which has been different about us is that we did not copy others. So many of the things that we didn't know broker, we just did from first principle. And I basically thought that if we are proven wrong, and if you die because of this, I am at peace. Because this is the way in which I am okay to die. Because this is a commonsensical way, first principle way. I don't want to spend the money to beat competition in short term artificially. We genuinely want to solve customer problem and uh, we want to respect money. We don't want to expand to cities for vanity reasons. Yeah. So I think those were the principles that we used.
0: Uh, I think that's super nice to hear and speaks a lot about you know what are the fundamentals that actually build a successful company and I know of your quote you know where you say that if I fail I'll fail by my choice and my direction and that's just wonderful to know just having that awareness is great Uh, but it's interesting Amit how you mentioned that you know a a customer at no broker is only using no broker maybe once in a couple of years right which means it's a low frequency product yet uh, high usage when it happens help us understand how you've looked at you know dominating the customer cycle even further we see that no broker is now doing some other things to you know come into the lives of the consumer even further and there are multiple things happening how do you look at expansion of the product suit and how are you looking at that approach i, I think that would be really helpful for all founders who are looking at scaling their companies
1: sure so for example everything that we have launched so today we are a one-stop shop for real estate Everything that we have launched has come from customers telling us, for example, when we started buy and sell, we thought, let's say you have a house, you have a resale house, you're charging say 70 lakhs or 1 crore for it. I'm a buyer who wants to meet you. And the moment we basically meet with each other, there's nobody in between us who's going to eat 2 to 2 percentage each, right? So 2 to 4 percentage is the cost of the transaction both buyer and seller combined. So this, this 3 to 4 lakh rupees of wastage is not going to happen and we are going to connect. But the strong feedback from the customers was who will do the sale deed? Who will do the sale agreement? Because the broker helps with that format. And we felt that and they basically connect you with lawyers who, who help you navigate this and who help you answer this question. So we realized that we need to impanel lawyers. We need to have the ability to do sale deed, sale agreement. Otherwise, what we are solving is 80% of the problem and the remaining percent of the problem is also very big. So when we started, we just thought that Cost of intermediation is important, but we discovered that convenience is also very important and predictability and, insu- and trust in that transaction is very important. So we offered more services. Similarly, we discovered over time that in packers and movers, painting, cleaning, uh, legal documentation, rental agreement, home loans. In many of these services, the, the chain is broken. You basically need to either Google, call a friend, you okay, know painter paint painter. Or uh, you basically need to go to different banks for home loan, uh, and then basically haggle with them, or you find some banker friend and so on. And so, forth. so we realize that many of these uh, services are broken, and we so slowly we move towards a model where we are a one-stop shop. So now we do everything right from basically anything that is to do with the real estate journey. We do it. Has it has journey been easy? No. So we have done multiple experiments, we have failed multiple times. The way in which we execute has also undergone a lot of changes. And we, we realized that it is very difficult to do these businesses because these businesses are execution led businesses. And the more businesses you do, the more are the possible failure points and more are the points where your brand can get tarnished. So you need to be extremely alert. You, you need to very, very alert with the respect to NPS. The moment NPS is going down, you need to stop it and then you need to basically regroup and then again do it. So my message would be that it always makes sense to just listen to the customer. Don't be arrogant about the solution that you have thought as a founder. You might find something not to be important, but it is very important, might be very important for customer. So in a way, if you are just shamelessly listening to what customer is saying, <laughs> it has amazing dividends.
0: Absolutely. You know, that's brilliant to hear. And I think I uh, definitely going to echo with a lot of people listening. Thing. But uh, now moving to maybe, you know, the team aspect, and I'm sure any successful companies incomplete without a great team. And maybe if you can help us understand that, you know, considering that all of you were experienced when you started No Broker, what were the kind of people that you were in the lookout for at that point in time? And how has that evolved over time? Right? Because I'm guessing now you also need a lot of a specialist, as they say, as uh, you grew and scaled the company. So uh, what do you have to say in terms of building the team over a period of time?
1: So I think that has changed because earlier when we started, we were small. So we were more so in terms of the managerial work, in terms of leadership, in terms of taking major decisions. We three founders were more than sufficient at that scale. Yes, we did a mistake by not hiring good HR and finance professionals in the start, which we corrected soon after. But apart from that we were taking major decisions and what we hired were basically people at the middle layer and we soon discovered that the people with whom we go well are the ones who take who a huge amount of passion and who take huge amount of responsibility and enjoy the startup who don't look at it like a job and of course in that decisions in those that journey also we made a lot of mistakes we corrected them sometimes we took too much time to basically let a person go. So we learned basically from those mistakes. And as slowly the basically grew, I think I was, fortunately I understood very quickly that I can do very little and we need to, I need to basically hire a lot of Amits who are better than this Amit. And uh, I think we have been successful in that. So as I often say that today, the next 20-30 people apart from us founders are so good and are so passionate and are so solid that if they were giving this podcast you would not have been able to identify that it is not me but someone else who is doing it so i think the reason why i come to office every day is the joy of working with such a smart bunch of people who argue with me who debate with me and today i would say now it's reverse motivation it is them who basically who motivate me with their passion, with their hunger to basically do more. So lots of mistakes have been made in this process. But fortunately, we were able to learn quickly. So I was able to learn quickly. Another lesson which I have learned in this journey is that as a leader, my job is not to be liked by everybody. My job is to be an effective leader, which basically means that if there is a wrong hire, it is not my job to just sustain that wrong hire just because I don't want to remove some person and earn bad vibes. Right. Because when you, so that has been a difficult change for me. I have always been next to And like every other human, I have this feeling that I would want to be by my team, but I have realized that my job is to bring is to basically make a very effective, strong, cutting edge, aggressive team with well-meaning good guys. But any bad hire has to be given some amount of rope, but giving too much of rope basically spoils culture. Uh, so that also basically I have learned over time.
0: That That's amazing. I think very, very candid in sharing the last part. I mean, keeping the company above you and not uh, not being liked is... One of the things that I've taken back and I'm sure that's going to be very, very different for everyone listening in because it's intuitive, but not something that everybody says out loud. So wonderful to know that. Uh, But, you know, uh, one last question on maybe this company building side and then we can move on to the end portions. But everybody talks about culture and you've spoken about, you know, how uh, frugality, how customer centricity is a quality and how you've been able to scale as a leader. What are some things in terms of culture that went wrong, maybe, right? Or maybe like a learning experience for you in terms of being deliberate about it? Because as a founder, you have to do so much, right? Including funding, including administrative overhaul, whatnot, right? How are you deliberate about culture, especially when the organization has grown considerably? I would love to know that. a So,
1: so culture is basically comes into that subject, which is sort of an emotional and iffy subject and many people, many engineers like me often struggle to define culture, to really mean it. And we often get confused whether there's something which some HR needs to do by writing some mission, mission values. I propose to basically look at culture in a very commonsensical stepwise way. So let me, so allow me to uh, elaborate on this. So whenever somebody joins a company, organization, a cricket team, a project group, anything, any a group of people who are doing, the person who is joining has some belief. The Belief can be that hey, if I if I ball well, if I bat well, I will be selected for the next match. If I or the belief can be that this is a dog eat dog world, I need to push everybody and I need to be in the limelight or I need to achieve result no matter whether I have to bribe somebody, but I have to to achieve. So, these are the beliefs that you might get into a group or organization believing something. Now, those beliefs that you have then transmit themselves into behavior, right? So, behavior is that will you be extremely cordial with others? Will you work in a collaborative way or will you hide things? Will you compete with others? Uh, Will you try to pray, butter your boss every morning or will you not care about him and only basically focus on customer and so on and so forth. Now you have some beliefs and you exhibit some behavior. These behaviors define, make a culture. So you come in a company, you see different people, you see a group of people behaving in a similar way and that is a culture of that team. So, if you want to make a good culture, you need to correct those beliefs immediately as soon as they start showing themselves into behavior. So, for example, if somebody comes and praises me about how good a shirt I am wearing, I need to make a statement immediately, which is batao, chal kya customer, kya bol So that he immediately understands that his belief that he needs to butter his boss is incorrect and he needs to change it. Or if the belief is that even if I do some unethical mean but I get the result, it's okay. And then I need to correct that behavior immediately. And as a leader, I need to exhibit those behaviors, which change those beliefs. So the moment you basically change those beliefs, the behavior gets changed, and the entire culture gets changed. So when you talk about whether there have been mistakes in our culture, I think the, so we were, I, we, I think I was able to observe any wrong hires who had different beliefs than us and who were exhibiting different behaviors. The only thing is that sometimes ah, being an IIT and myself and coming from good pedigree colleges, sometimes your emotional side takes over and you give a long rope that, okay, let me just give a feedback and the behavior will change. Often it does not change. So I think the only mistake which has happened to us is that perhaps we took three or six months more in making a decision. But apart from that, today, if you look at my team, I would basically love to, call each one of them to my home and get invited to their home and have personal relationship, even if they are not part of no group and encounter. So amazing set of people with matching belief behavior, matching, uh, I would say core principles of beliefs. Yeah.
0: That's fabulous, Amit. I think uh, a lot of great clarity and simplicity and more importantly candidness there. I think uh, it puts it down very, very well for everyone listening. And I loved that explanation. I think, you know, since we're also on the subject of mistakes and challenges, you spoke about very briefly, you know, the challenge with VC funding. Uh, Have there been any other such instances where... I don't know if you've ever doubted yourself but you know where the going got very difficult and very challenging uh, and maybe it was not as sustainable and what do you do in such moments because i'm guessing as a founder you eventually make peace with it but what was it like for you in the no broker journey i would love to know that and how you navigated it more importantly
1: see i would take the risk of saying that almost every and i'm not saying every but i'm saying almost every i would say almost every founder has moments when they are frustrated, when they are insecure, when they are fearful, when they are unsure, I would say these moments just keep on coming. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't share it with your team, but thankfully you can share it with your co-founders and with your family and your support system. So I would say that, that in the initial years, these, the, they only change the way in which there are video games and there are different levels. And you think that if you, if you clear level one, you are amazing, but level two has its own difficulty. So I would say the only thing which has changed is my reaction to them. Earlier, my reaction to them was full of higher higher amount of worry. Now, the worry might have reduced a little bit because we have seen many ups and downs. But I would say these ups and downs keeps on coming. Sometimes they are about VC funding. Sometimes they are about valuation you want to achieve. Sometimes it's about success in a new business segment that you have launched. So I think as a as a businessman, there are tens and tens of things to worry about every day. and uh, And hence, those doubts, basically, they keep on coming. What I the only thing which I have learned is and I'm not saying i've been able to do it fully but i'm trying to do is to quickly take much more analytical approach towards it rational approach towards it and try to basically distance yourself from the problem and think that if you were advising somebody else to solve this problem how would you advise to but uh, but i would say that from the when you are a pre-seed company you worry about getting funding When you're IPO company, you worry about your stock price. So I think you always, as a founder, you always worry about something. So that never goes.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's so true. And uh, it's just like the acceptance of it is very, very amazing. And it's just that you have to eventually make peace with it. But uh, the reality after all. So kudos to that. And I think... uh, one last bit here in terms of you know now that you've raised multiple rounds of funding uh, and you know initially the funding troubles were there but I'm guessing uh, they've sorted out. What do you recommend early stage founders currently in today's market do when choosing their next set of partners? Right, because now that you're seven years into this journey and there will be I'm guessing no funding round is just in isolation. They're a marriage. Uh, what do you recommend other founders do from a very you know neutral perspective or sorts, or what should one look at? when choosing an investor, if you have the luxury of doing so, I uh, would love to know that.
1: So I think there are two things. One is that the specific person who is coming on the board or who is coming from that investment firm. And second is the horizon and the ability of that company to contribute more. So let me explain more. So the second part which I spoke about is about the fact whether the company has deep pockets and whether it's a long-term partner. And if, if you do well, can they invest in the next one or two rounds more? So one is this. If you are taking money from an investor who most probably will do only this round, then you have a problem in the next round, right? Because then you will develop a relationship. But then for the next round, again, you need to go. You need to ask for fresh ones or someone else. So this longevity of the relationship. Is the longevity is the longevity higher? Will the Can the VC contribute more in terms of support going forward? One is this. And second is the person-specific. So now I am seeing that in case we have a choice, it's a very good habit and a culture which is getting made is that the founders are taking reference check of the investor who is coming on their board, which I think is amazing. So just five, seven years back, it never occurred to us. We were like, but I can tell you with some experience, thankfully, our investors have been amazing, but I have seen some companies where, A single person has completely destroyed the entire boardroom conversations and has single handedly basically reduced the trust of the entire board on the founders and resulting into almost the dissolution of the company. I've seen many instances and only you just need one one naughty guy in the board or one distrustful guy in the board. We have to realize as businessmen that the business will do ups and downs, you might be on the high today, you might be seeing that your growth rate is 100% per month, and world is yours, but every business, so Amazon Amazon went down for many, many years, the stock price just crashed for many, many years and it went to nowhere. Same thing happened with Apple. So legendary companies, and, and you, you are anyway aware about Elon Musk almost getting bankrupt and then basically coming back with SpaceX and so on. So for every top business in the world, you would see tough times. So you have to assume that the tough times will come. And if the VC doesn't support you in those tough times and instead gets worried and tries to, tries to create more issues for you, then how will you handle that? So my recommendation would be to look at two things, longevity of the relationship with the VC firm. And second, this, taking a reference check of the person who is coming from fellow founders.
0: Got it. I think that's very actionable in nature and very, very helpful. As we close down the conversation, Amit, uh, I would love to know a couple of final answers from you, which are personal to you. My favorite question on the show is to ask founders how they've evolved with their journey and how they have personally scaled, because I can very well look at, you know, the valuation of No Broker and be like, it's a unicorn and it's done so well and whatnot. But often we forget the people behind it and we don't have the other founders. But if you can speak about you know how you were when No Broker started and what this journey has done to you personally, I think we as youngsters who are going to build the next set of companies would feel uh, very enthusiastic about what this journey makes you do and, and would love to know that of it. Sure. So, so I think I would
1: talk about things which have remained, which have become different and things which have remained same or which I would want to to remain. So what has become different is, see, one is in terms of self-confidence. So no matter what you say, the ability to make a company large gives you a huge amount of happiness, pride, and confidence of being able to take more bold initiatives in future. So that's a great thing. Success feeds success. So if you are, if your one year is good, then your second year. Basically, you are more confident that you are going to basically do well. So that has happened automatically over the years. Second thing, which is that ability to take bold bets have improved drastically for me because I have taken bold bets from day one. The quantum of the bold bets have changed because the underlying resources have changed. But from day one, I have been extremely bold in terms of thinking big, taking. So if I 10 rupees, I have thought about a bet that I can take with a full 10. Now if 100 rupees, I have taken, now that rupee has changed, but I've taken bold bets. So I think that uh, has basically happened more. Things, third thing, which I was telling you is that I'm trying to be, what I'm trying to basically do is to have lesser, have more analytical, more rational reactions towards the problem. So, uh, so you don't worry about them more, but you move towards the solution faster. So there are things which have happened uh, with me. Things I would, which I would want to not change and hopefully they are not changing is that many a times I've seen that the people around you, they try to put you on a pedestal as if you are God's gift. We are not. I, I know I am not. I'm basically doing a business. I'm trying to do my best. And yes, it has done well in the past few years. But I'm very, very scared that there should I should not start becoming arrogant. I should not start becoming pompous, which I have seen many people become in front of me only. So that is something which I am very, very cautious about, worried about. And I need to basically realize that basically I am just like anybody else. And it is only a problem which I am solving of non progress which is which customers are liking. That's one part of my life, but overall nothing changes. So so, <laughs> so, try to be on the ground, be grounded always. That's what I am telling myself. Yeah.
0: Call it. That's extremely humble of you and modest and for the right reasons. I mean, just goes to show that, I mean, the journey evolves you, but you can't, you know, think of yourself as the entire world. And uh, I mean, it, it just shows how what success does to a person in the real sense of it. So kudos to what you've done and hopefully this only continues to uh, do well. For the second last question, Amit, I, I mean, we'd love to know that you know, it's one thing to be a founder, it's another thing to be a leader, and it's another thing to be the person that you are and be a father and have a family, right? What are some constant principles and values in life that you know you really cherish and live by, and what are some non-negotiables for you as you traverse through every next day? I I think that that would be super nice to hear as an individual to know you better. So
1: I think basically two things. One is. To be extremely. I would want, I always want to sleep peacefully, and uh, second is I always want to work hard. So, I'll just explain both. So, one is that be in my dealing with vendors, my dealing with my employees, my dealing with my family, and my dealing with my investors. I have a very strong moral compass. Now my compass may be right, may be wrong for others, but I have a strong moral compass. The objective is to always adhere to it and not be greedy, never shortchange anybody. So I have, it has been seven years, we have we have hired thousands of people and I can I can say with a lot of confidence that you can talk to any person, any ex-employee, any current employee. I don't think anybody can say that I have ever shortchanged anybody. So I have been extremely fair. So that is something which, which I want to continue doing and which is a constant thread across all the roles that I basically uh, do. So that is basically one. And second is continuous hard work. So, so never be complacent because uh, the, the reason why no broker has been doing well and has been accepted by customer is because the our previous players in real estate did not listen to customer. So customers were changing, customers were moving from non, from brokerage to non-brokerage. And they did—they missed all the signs. But we also can have the same fate. We may also become complacent. We may also stop listening to customer. We may assume that non-brokerage is the only thing which customer wants. Perhaps customer wants more convenience. And customer is okay to pay brokerage. Who knows? Or perhaps there's a set of customers today also who are happy to pay brokerage but want more convenience. We have to cater to them differently. So second thing is to be always working hard, be it with family, be it uh, no broker. And never be complacent with the status quo.
0: Absolutely, no. I think love both of them again. I think a great pointers there, and very, very practical and real. So I think that's what stands out throughout the conversation. I think this has been fantastic, Amita, and I don't know if this would be a fitting end to what has been a great conversation, but. Uh, uh, if you were to go back to your initial motivation of why you started a company and today, you know, broker is a unicorn, you have so many employees, you have a responsibility, uh, but what has been the constant motivation that wakes you up every day and, you know, makes you come to the office with the entire zeal? I, I know you want to build a large organization like every other founder and I'm sure you will, but if you can go back to the core motivation of what motivates you as a founder, I think everyone tuning in will really enjoy that as a ending to a beautiful conversation.
1: Sure. So I would answer this and then I would want to basically add a small note uh, before we end it. So so I think there are two things which basically makes me take and makes me come to office every day. One is the numbers, the growth that we can have. So basically trying to grow a little bit more today than what we did yesterday. Trying to think about some more segment of the business that we can improve on. Some way in which you can make more money, satisfy more customers. I think that every day, one small change, which basically we are trying to do, that is what is exciting. So I think that is that thing of a startup, which basically makes me tick. And second is the just sheer joy of working with amazing people. So no broker has amazing set of people who are very passionate, very good human beings and very, very hungry a large teams of th- team of thousands of people now with huge amount of passion at every level so even a customer care guy who is calling a customer has his own expertise and we have to salute it because only he can do i i can't do it that effectively of course i can't so so that is the second one which is basically amazing set of individuals that i get i'm blessed to basically work with so these are two things which make me tick on a on a ending note i must Say, Jivaraj, that I have uh, given many podcasts and have given many interviews, thankfully. But uh, it's amazing to know the amount of research that you do. <laughs> so, uh, some things which basically, that's why I've tried to, to mention things which I have not mentioned elsewhere. Because you had heard so many podcasts already that I had to basically think what more can I add in terms of value today. So, huge kudos to you. Uh, you just don't do any podcast for the sake of it you do your research work very well which is an amazing trait and i wish you all the best and hope you continue this
0: thank you so much i mean that means a lot coming from you amit and i have genuinely enjoyed so much of not just researching about you but this live a uh, 50 55 minute conversation and i'm sure everyone listening in will enjoy it a lot thank you so much for being your candid self and being very very honest uh, this was an absolute pleasure to host you thank you thank you Awesome. With that, we come to the end of this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in to the episode. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're finding value with the podcast, do follow it on the audio streaming platform of your choice, drop in a review, and subscribe to our WhatsApp newsletter to get all the updates directly on your inbox. Thanks again. I will see you next week for another episode. Till then, I hope you record. If you never try, you'll never know. Stay tuned and keep building.